For this segment of Tech Talk with Johnson College, Dr. Katie Leonard hosts Latita Smith, President and CEO of the Moses Taylor Foundation, where they will discuss the coronavirus pandemic's influence on mental health concerns, our community, and the healthcare field. So as I'm recording this, we're about to go into the time of year that represents thanks and giving. It's early November, and it really has me thinking about the holidays. Now, I don't want to sit here and go on and on about how different it's going to be this year. I think we're all very well aware of that. Um, But if there's one positive for this year, uh, it is that I've come to appreciate the small businesses that I frequent that much more. Uh, I was lost without them during the height of the pandemic when the stay-at-home order was in place. Um, Sure, I could order from them um, online, but it's not the same when it comes to small businesses. Uh, I really couldn't wait to get back to them when we could, um, because it's not so much about what I buy uh, at these places, although, of course, I do always find something um, to to purchase, whether it's for myself or someone I care about, Um, but it's more about the experience and the interactions that I have um, when, when I'm there. So I know all of us frequent the big box stores and we shop at Amazon. I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't. Um, And yes, that's a certain type of experience too. Um, But where I live in Scranton, the community is really made up of these great eclectic small businesses that make my life and I know the lives of so many others better. Um, So I want to give a shout out to the gals at the Curiosity Shop, uh, the crew at Pop It, the fabulous people at Nada and Company and Zumo's Cafe, uh, on and on. uh, And of course, the awesome people at Little Pizza Heaven, some of the best Italian food I have ever eaten. And that's coming from a New Yorker. Um, These places are surviving the pandemic and not all have been so lucky. My favorite pizza place, Brunetti's, um, another great neighborhood joint, uh, had to close and I will miss their pizza um, in my hair salon. And recently I got an email from the Strand Bookstore. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Strand. It's an iconic bookstore in New York City. Um, And it, it basically read that they might not survive the pandemic with tourism being down and New Yorkers just not being out and about as much, or they're moving out of the city, so there's just not as many of them, they may not make it. So think about that. That's the strand. Um, For me, that's a million little interactions that have created so many wonderful memories of my time growing up in New York and visiting since I've moved away. I wanted to be there for others. I wanted to be there for my daughter so she can have those kinds of experiences over time. Um, And it almost doesn't seem fair that it's happening. Um, So now fast forward a week and the Strand is already doing better. But again, it's the Strand. Um, So let's do the same for our own local small businesses. They connect us. They're there for us. Let's be there for them, especially going into this holiday season. So I have another challenge for all of you. Uh, Since we have more time on our hands these days, let's all vow to be more intentional about our shopping this holiday season. For every big store, big box store that we visit and Amazon purchase we make, let's commit to making two purchases at a local small business. Treat yourself, shop for others. I promise you will find such unique items as you shop and you will make some unexpected connections as well. It's these types of connections that bond us as a community and make us healthier. 
Um, which leads me to our guest this month, Ms. Latita Smith, President and CEO of the Moses Taylor Foundation, joins me. We discuss this very topic, uh, how interconnected we all are and how it fuels our health and our very being. We also talk about the impact that COVID is having on our mental well-being and how important it is for all of us to be there for each other. I hope you enjoy, I hope you learn something, and please, over the next month, think about those small businesses you love and take a stop in. I promise it will make you feel a little bit better. Thank you for listening. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today, Latita. It's so great to see you. My pleasure. <laughs> so just um, to start off, you know, for those that don't know, could you tell us a little bit about the Moses Taylor Foundation? Moses Taylor is a private health conversion foundation. We were established from the sale of Moses Taylor Hospital System. The hospital system was a nonprofit for many, many years. And when it was sold in 2012 to a for-profit corporation, the proceeds from the sale endowed the foundation. And so we have about $90 million that we oversee, and it's our responsibility to um, invest in improving the health of Northeast Pennsylvania. So when you started here, it must have been, you know, it must have been difficult to figure out, well, within this space of healthcare, which is so broad, especially community health in a community like Northeastern Pennsylvania, how did you and you know the board of directors sort of decide on the scope and the range uh, of what to focus on and fund? So we spent a lot of time early on really taking some time to talk with a variety of stakeholders. We really wanted to talk with other community leaders, with um, various nonprofit professionals, as well as community members, just to understand um, what they saw as both the challenges and opportunities that exist in our community. We take a very broad view of health, so health is not just um, the physical well-being of people in our community, but also their mental health and a range of things that help to impact the health of individuals. And so we really want to understand um, what people saw as the leading health needs in our community. We also looked at the data and we're very interested in understanding how we stack up against other regions in the Commonwealth and in the country. Um, and from all of that, we identified some broad areas where we thought we could make impact. So we have an interest in primary health care and behavioral health in oral health and the healthcare workforce, and also in human services that help to promote good health, like access to food and housing and things like that. That's great. So now, you know, considering the times that we're in, um, in living, you know, through COVID, um, how has that impacted the foundation? How has that impacted your grant making? So, um, well, certainly COVID has impacted our world in um, a myriad <laughs> so of ways. ways. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that, you know, uh, in many ways, though, we found that um, COVID has really pushed to the forefront a lot of issues that we um, care deeply about. I think it has underscored for the country, for the world, how interconnected we all are, how very much your health is directly tied to my health and um, the importance of us all recognizing how important public health is to the region. We happen to live in a community that doesn't have 
a public health department. Actually, mm-hmm. most of the counties in mm-hmm. the Commonwealth don't have a public health department, but um, in particular, um, our region doesn't. And so you recognize the impact of that and how that um, affects access to information, access to interventions, and the role that all of us need to play in promoting the health of the region. Yeah, I'm so glad you touched upon that because there's been a lot of conversations about that. I know there was a big article um, that the Scranton Times did about the the lack of a health department. And what's interesting is that I'm from New York originally, um, and I came to Pennsylvania to go to school down in York County, and they did have a health department, and it was very active um, in all things, to your point, just public health, touching upon that interconnectedness. They would even work with the, you know, the Human Relations Commission and bring just community events together, understanding that the community's health is also tied to our individual health. And if we're better, you know, as individuals, then the community is going to be better. Um, so can we just stay on that a little bit and just, you know, from your perspective, because you have such an interesting background. Have you seen, you know, like what are the effects, I guess, of a public health department in other areas? Sure. So I grew up in Cleveland and um, in Northeast Ohio, we had a city health department, a county health mm-hmm. department, in addition to having the state health department. And so the access to information that we had, granular information regarding um, the health status of people in our community was really essential. And it's something that I feel the absence of here in Northeast Pennsylvania, although we do have great resources that do provide us with some timely information around Mm -hmm. key indicators. But it's not the kind of primary data that you have when you have a health department. But not only just the um, access to information, but also the leadership. Um, Having a neutral party identify these are the health priorities of our community and having um, that authority to bring together a wide variety of stakeholders to say this is important and we need to all contribute to resolving these health priorities in our community is really essential. Mm -hmm. In addition to moving health policy to ensure that there is policy at a local level that helps to support the health of the region. So I think that it's that information, the policy, the Mm -hmm. convening and leadership that I miss having in our region. And again, there are a variety of stakeholders who are playing critical roles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that, you know, not every community can have its own health department. They are expensive. Mm -hmm. They never pay for themselves. They always have a significant um, need for resources. Um, But I think that um, they do add value. And now is one of those times where we feel the absence of something like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, there are wonderful resources and people doing such great work. You know, the mayor of, you know, the city of Scranton brought together a lot of those stakeholders through this. I know I was lucky enough to be uh, in a group with other college presidents in the city, doctors from, you know, Commonwealth Health, Geisinger, the medical college. Um, And I thought, you know, how lucky am I? But then at the end of the day, as we were putting our reopening plans together and our safety plans together and just thinking about all of this differently, we were all still looking at each other thinking, well, who do we really report this to? You know, you know, we're lucky, knock on wood. Um, We're more than halfway through the semester right now here at the college. We've had no positive cases on campus. Um, But still, I think the big question was, as we were putting our plans together, if there were, who do we report to other than the state? Who do we turn to for guidance? Certainly, you know, the mayor has kept this group together and we're leaning heavily on each other. But I think for us, like you said, it just, I think, was just shining a very bright light on, you know, you realize what you don't 
have when you absolutely feel as if you need it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, so from your perspective, like what would it take um, if we were to do, you know, establish a health department here? Like you said, I know it takes a lot of resources and, um, you know, but it could also be something that I think really brings this community together. Because I think, you know, to your point earlier, we all, I think, have a good understanding of the different health issues of the area. I think there's things that we can agree upon that as a community, um, we're really strong at, but there's also things that we need to work at, you know, collectively um, and together. And this this could be maybe something that brings some of those issues together. So there is a lot of emerging energy in uh, amongst mm-hmm. the city. So certainly the mayor of Scranton has a strong interest in um, standing up at public health department, um, but also in Lackawanna County. And so there are public officials there who are also thinking about what this would take. And there are a variety of similar discussions, as you would imagine, happening throughout the Commonwealth as individual municipalities are thinking about, um, do we have um, enough of what it takes to build a public health department in our region. Mm-hmm. And so some of it is just bringing um, those um, individuals together to plan, to identify what resources are available, mm-hmm. what it would take from the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I am part of a group who's working with the Institute for Public Policy and Economic Development to really do a feasibility study around that now. That's great. And could this be one of those issues where, like you talked about, you hit the nail on the head, like looking at taking a step back and really looking at this as a regional issue i think again there's things we do really well um as a region and then there's things where sometimes you know we kind of step back and say well this is lackawanna county this is luzerne county this is wayne county this is pike but i really think this could be an opportunity for us to come together around this and say you know what if we've learned nothing through uh the covid it's that we are interconnected our health does depend on each other and we are stronger together so even though it comes out of something that is has not been very healthy for everyone i actually think there there could be a lot of positive momentum and good outcomes absolutely and yeah so it's exciting to hear um about the work that that's going on yes um so just to you know kind of say you know with the, with the, the 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 pandemic and um, you know, I know the, the foundation kind of is on the front end of just looking at trends and where things are going. So are there, even before COVID, are there other things that you were seeing in the community, any shifts, any, you know, trends that you were like, ooh, this is something that we kind of need more information on? Sure. So, um A couple of years ago, our foundation launched a strategic planning process. And as part of that, we really looked to identify um, what were the greatest areas of need in our community and where could we really make a difference. And a couple of the issues that we landed on, um, one was the whole issue of older adult isolation. And it seems really... Um, it seems absolutely right right now yes. that we would have chosen that area, but we chose it a couple of years ago because we really identified that um, Northeast Pennsylvania is really aging. Mm-hmm. Um, many of our residents are becoming um, older, which is something that we should feel really proud of. Um, and yet at the same time, many of them are isolated. And what we found is that isolation has a significant impact on older adults. It impacts not only your mental health, but also your physical health. AARP has determined that being isolated as an older adult 
is is akin to um, smoking 16 cigarettes a day. It has that kind of impact on your physical body and on your immune system, um, on your susceptibility to um, cardiovascular disease and a whole range of other health concerns. And so we really looked to bring together a group of stakeholders in Lackawanna County to think about how could we work together to better identify older adults at risk for isolation, to um, help to connect them to resources and educate the general community about the impact of older adult isolation. So that's one issue Mm -hmm. that we've really um, been looking to build awareness of. Um, But in general, um, our foundation has really um, looked to underscore um, the reality that your physical health is only determined um, by a very small part um, by your genetics or what you're born with Mm -hmm. and by the actual care that you get in the doctor's office. The largest part of your health is determined by your behavior, um, the individual um, choices that um, you make and the choices that you have the ability to make. And for so many people in our community, particularly those of lower income, the their ability to make choices is significantly hindered by their income. And mm-hmm. so the food they're able to eat, the opportunities they have for recreation, where they're able to live are all determined by their income. And um, to the degree that we can help um, people in our community live a higher quality of life, we can also help them to have the opportunity to make better health care choices. And so um, making that connection between those social determinants of health mm-hmm. is also um, something that we've tried to work really hard to do. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I think it was the University of Scranton that did their living wage study. Yes. And just how much comes down to even the zip code. Absolutely. And that was something that I know, you know, coming from New York where you have some of the most wealthiest of zip codes and yet some of the, um, you know, kind of poorest zip codes as well. um, It was something that I was always very much, you know, aware of just growing up. But I don't know if, you know, because it's not sort of as, prevalent here I think um, that sometimes we forget about it sometimes Mm -hmm. we just think you know we all get caught up in our daily lives and we think you know everyone's like me everyone has the access you know that I do everyone you know makes the same choices and to your point that's you know so often not the case and it really does sometimes just come down to this is where I was born this is what my family life was like and this and it's just sort of that same cycle yes Um, so from from your backgrounds what are what are those things that help break some of those cycles (laughs) I know that's a big yes (laughs) um So certainly part of it is um, education Mm -hmm. at a ground level, just ensuring that that there's early access to education for children, um, ensuring that um, families have access to um, not only education that enables them to um, seek um, more sustainable employment, but also just um, access to the kind of health information and education that can help them to make healthier choices. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really critical. 
education alone, because even that I think sometimes we take for granted. That, yes. You know, again, the school, you know, if my parents had access to good, you know, quality, um, you know, daycare, to, you know, even just starting from yes. a young age, even those that, you know, feel as if they want to put their children in daycare versus those that have to put their children in daycare and sure. the access that they have. And just, again, you know, it's interesting to just think about like the ripple effect that some of those early um, decisions. And like I said, sometimes people, you know, have, they look at it, well, I have the opportunity and access to make these decisions where, you know, some people it's like, well, no, like I, I have to make this decision. Absolutely. Um, so I, you know, definitely you know, access and, and education. And then over the course of someone's life, you know, going back to what you were saying too, about the older adult population, I'm so fortunate to be on the board of NeighborWorks of Northeastern Pennsylvania. Yes. And we've done some wonderful um, work, you know, with seniors. Yes. And again, through the pandemic, it's, this was something, you know, we were working on as well prior to the pandemic, but I think it really just drove home how important the work is that we're doing um, through the pandemic because, you know, we started a very active just outreach program and you know making phone calls to seniors yes and, you know some of the stories that the staff and volunteers were coming back with you know the senior person saying you were the only you know person to check in on me um through this you, you know you're the only voice that i heard um today i mean some of it is just yes. really it just puts everything um into perspective and just going back to what you said earlier about how we're all interconnected and you know again if we don't take care of each other <laughs> yes you know we're not these generations that, you know that we learn so much from um aren't going to to be around so um you know thank you for doing that work because i just think you know being a part of it from the neighbor works perspective it's just very um very important that that we take care of <laughs> absolutely our seniors um so could you tell me or share with everyone a little bit about your background, um, particularly, um, you know, the work that you did, I believe, for the city of Cleveland, sure. um, you know, during the AIDS and HIV pandemic. And could you share, like, are there any parallels between, you know, that pandemic and what we're seeing today? Sure. So I began my career in um, Northeast Ohio, um, working for nonprofits and then for city government. Um, in Cleveland, and I did work for the Cleveland Health Department where I oversaw their HIV AIDS program. And it was a body of federal and state funding that I managed that was responsible for supporting HIV prevention education as well as care services for people living with AIDS. Um, at the time that I was there, um, it was in the um, late 90s, and so it wasn't at the peak mm, yeah. of AIDS. Um, it was actually um, when um, awareness and, and um, sensitivity to the AIDS epidemic was actually waning. And so a lot of our work was really around helping people recognize that it was still a significant risk and we really needed to um, continue to stay um, cognizant of those things that put particular communities at risk. Um, I think one of the things that I learned um, through working for the Cleveland Health Department that um, resonates with me right now is the way that um, pandemics um, like um, COVID and an epidemic like AIDS 
can really um, exacerbate the disparities that already exist in a community. Mm -hmm. So um, when we looked at um, the people who were most impacted by HIV in Northeast Ohio, but really across the country, across the world, um, it um, ended up being those people who were already most at the margin. So those people who were already burdened by uh, substance abuse mm -hmm. um, disorders, um, people who were already living in poverty, um, people who already lacked access to health care um, and education. Um, those were the folks who were often um, had less resources to keep um, themselves healthy. So even when they um, contracted the disease, um, they fared l far less well than other people with access mm -hmm. to resources and supports because um, basic things like stable housing, um, employment that ensured um, health care, um, and access to healthy food um, that significantly um, impacted your outcomes um, ended up making a big difference in how people feared um, when they were living with AIDS. And to the same degree, we see that happening with COVID, um, that um, access mm -hmm. to health care, um, access to a healthy place to live, um, to recuperate. Um, we're finding that for so many communities, um, when people um, do not have stable housing, they don't have a place where even if they are um, faring um, okay um, with um, COVID, they don't have a safe place to take care of themselves mm -hmm. um, away from their family members. And so again, all of those issues that already kept people at the margin um, just exacerbate their experience with COVID. And so it reminds us that um, these health disparities that always exist in our community are something that we need to continue to be mindful of um, addressing. And they're disparities that exist for older adults, that exist mm -hmm. for low-income families, that exist for um, racial minorities, um, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And again, so much of it just comes down to, you know, how does a person almost start their life? You know, are they, you know, when you take a step back, are they... At, are they even on a level playing field right. when you look at the averages? Um, and something, too, that as, as we're talking, it's kind of interwoven throughout, but, you know, I still think in this day and age, it doesn't get enough attention. And that's, like, the impact that all of this has on our mental health. And, again, even our capacity to make decisions. Like, how does that impact, you know, you know, if we all know you're you're having a bad day, and it just it it does. It, it you can't help it. It just impacts the way in which you make decisions, your outlook on life. Um, you know, you know, just kind of keeps you sometimes either from going down the rabbit hole or not going down the rabbit hole. Um, so you know, whether you look at you know your time you know working in Cleveland or now with COVID, how do you see things like this? You know, kind of like the mental health concerns that that it, it causes and the ripple effects. Absolutely. So, I mean, we already knew that there were um, significant mental health challenges in our community. Um, just per capita, there are fewer mental health professionals in our region than there are in other areas of the Commonwealth. And so we recognize that there are a lot of people um, without access to the care and support that they need. Um, but in crisis times like these, you feel it more acutely. And so, um, you know, uh, we think a lot about what happens when kids are in, aren't in school. And so for so many kids who were accessing 
uh, mental health um, treatment and support in the school systems mm -hmm. now that um, schools are not there every day and they're not allowing ancillary folks into the school buildings, many of those kids are without those kinds of supports that they really need. There's mm -hmm. also just the stigma around uh, mental health um, in the at the beginning and the idea that most people don't recognize it as a true health concern. Mm -hmm. they, rec they see it more as a personal deficit and so that impacts people's ability to seek help when they need it, to recognize they're in trouble when they are. And mm -hmm. so um, we've done a lot of work to try and normalize um, mental health um, across our community and even celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month as something that we all need to be tuned mm -hmm. into, especially times like now where yeah. we're all feeling more stress and um, have so much more um, challenges that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting? I thought through all of this um, that it would become easier for people to talk about. And what I'm finding even here on campus is that it's I think it's becoming even more challenging because to your mm -hmm. point, I don't know that people want to admit that they're struggling or that, you know, even that it's impacting them um, because in a lot of ways it's not like if they don't have somebody who's been affected or, you know, they don't, you know, they've never lived through this before. Sure. Um, so just think, well, like this is life. We have to press on. We have to, um, you know, keep going, especially with our population of, of student. We have, you know, a lot of, but, you know, male, you know, dominated. Mm -hmm. I know mental health issues tend to impact males a little like later um, in their like earlier, you know, to mid 20s. So, you know, I just feel the, the more we can talk about it and people just understand that, OK, like this is just a normal part of my total health um, in my experience, I think, you know, I, I really think that's important. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, I've been saying, you know, the staff here has heard me, you know, say it. Um, winter hasn't even hit yet. So right now we've been fortunate that it's been, yes. it was a wonderful summer. It's been a beautiful fall. Um, that's where we're at right now. Um, but the winter hasn't hit yes. yet. And, you know, I feel at this point, um, you know, we're towards the end of October now. For us, we're more than halfway through our semester. And, you know, the last couple of weeks, you know, little things are just starting, I think, to get to people, you know, working from home, their children, you know, being at home, different schedules, even just stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, and those of us that, you know, think that we have it all together, even are starting to be like, oh, like this is, it's hard. Sure. Like this is hard. So could you just share a little bit from your perspective, like, like resources that might be available? Sure. I know. Well, one thing that we've done, I mean, I think leadership matters a lot in organizations and to the degree that, um, you know, you as a leader or, um, me as a leader of our organization can just say out loud that it is a difficult time, that it's normal to not be okay. Um, I think that that really goes a long way. Um, we've even at the foundation instituted um, health days. So instead of having mm -hmm. sick time, yeah. we have health time. And so, and it's equally okay for someone to take a day off for a health day, a mental health day, as it is if you have like the cold or the flu. Um, and believe me, like I have two school age kids at home <laughs> and I've taken some health days because, um, you know, it is tough managing um, the foundation, managing mm -hmm. their schedules um, and, and it's hard to juggle it all. And so I think that um, by taking the time to do that myself and modeling for my team that it's okay to say I need to take a pause and 
um, you know, breathe or <laughs> walk outside before it starts snowing yeah. um, is really important. And I think that it goes um, a long way to say that um, that we value mental health as much as we value physical health. And you don't have to be sick to need an opportunity to take care of your health. Yeah. And it's so funny. Like, again, it's, like, it's one of those things where when it's a physical thing, it's like, okay, well, I'm not feeling good. And I know I'm going to take this time off and I'm going to feel better. It's just, it's so different when it yes. comes to, like you said, just taking that break and that, that mental health time. Or even with the physical thing, you think, I don't want to make other people sick. So right. I'm, you know, I may want to go to work, but I don't want to, you know, yeah. give everyone else, you know, the flu. But, you know, you're not going to give everyone else anxiety, but right. still it's important that you take yeah. care of yourself. Yeah, and it's real. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit. I know, you know, we touched upon it a little bit earlier, but just, you know, the, the healthcare workforce of the region. I know we've had a wonderful partnership, the foundation and Johnson yes. College and, you know, building that pipeline. Um, so could you talk a little bit just about um, the foundation's work in this area? And again, like what, what you're seeing um, as a trend? Yes. So healthcare workforce is one of our core areas of investment. And we've been really pleased to have multiple partnerships with Johnson College around um, your um, myriad of programs for um, healthcare professionals. And um, healthcare is one of the leading industries in our community. And we really see an opportunity to not just um, help produce more doctors and nurses in our region, although we do need those, but also help um, people in our community understand the myriad of um, jobs that they can have within the healthcare industry. So how you can bring an interest in communications or technology or a whole host of different um, subject matters into healthcare and the healthcare workspace. And so um, we have done a lot of work um, with area colleges and universities to help educate um, students. Um, we've done work um, with industry partners so that they can increase opportunities for internships and other um, opportunities that will bring community members into their places of business to understand what happens there. Um, and we really recognize it as vital not only to um, you know, creating a stronger workforce in our community, but also ensuring that people from here have the opportunity to take care of people here because yeah. they understand the community best, mm -hmm. they understand their neighbors best, and they would be most um, inclined to stay here after graduation. And so that is very important to us. That's a great point. You know, we, we often say that we, we sort of, you know, contribute to the brain gain, not the brain drain, because the majority of our students are from like probably yes. within a 60 mile um, radius, I would say. And we were just having this conversation too, um, internally about, we, we do a lot of live labs out in the community. So we have a very strong internship program, clinical program, um, but also now getting students out even earlier into different industry locations um, to do a lot of their lab work and their tasks and their experiential learning. Um, but another piece of that is just, to your point, just giving back to the community and just helping students understand that, you know, by doing this, you know, volunteer, um, you know, housing project as opposed to being, you know, strictly part of your class, you are impacting your neighbors. And our students love that experience. Sure. And I feel there's no better way for them to combine their awesome technical skills that they, you know, come here to hone and, and build, um, but those soft skills mm -hmm. as well. Just, you know, it kind of brings, you know, the whole conversation um, that we've been talking about here together in terms of that interconnectedness. Because yes. when they drive down Main Ave and they see 
a house that they helped wire or, you know, a senior that they helped maybe put a ramp Mm -hmm. on their house so they could stay in that house and and age the way in which that they choose to. Yes. Um, It has a huge impact on students. And I hope, you know, students that aren't from this area, it helps them to recognize like, hey, this is just all at the end of the day, it's all about just people Mm -hmm. helping people. And we're all human. Yes. (laughs) And, um, but you know, how, from your perspective, um, what are some of the ways in, in which, you know, community organizations are helping to build that healthcare um, pipeline? Are yeah. there things, like any innovative things going on at any of the hospitals? I know they're, you know, I think they're even looking at clinical um, sites differently, just making sure students have the opportunity to come in. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, with the um, birth of our uh, of the Geisinger Commonwealth Medical College, um, there have been a lot of opportunities that that has brought um, to help better bridge the community and um, the healthcare industry. And so they have programs um, where they are going into high schools and helping to um, educate um, students about health careers, create opportunities for um, internships and partnerships around research and a variety of programs that are really giving young people um, access to the field of medicine and new and um, innovative ways. Yeah, and to your point too, just the variety of careers. I think, you know, sometimes yes. people think healthcare or no different than just careers in general. Everyone knows, you know, doctor, lawyer, yes. you know, teacher, um, but just just healthcare alone, the different paths somebody can take. Um, so we're even trying to do more and more of that too, like after school programming, um, STEM programming, just helping people at a much younger age understand that like, yep, there's still doctor, lawyer, you know, too, but sure. there's all these other pathways you can you, you can take as well, depending on what you're interested. Definitely. In. And also understand the career ladders that exist so that yes. you could start off, you know, today as a STNA. And that is training that you can receive in a relatively short amount of time and become employed. Mm-hmm. And then while you are employed, also work towards an RN, if that's something of interest, or a BSN and, you know, continue to... Um, progress um, in the healthcare field um, at a pace um, that makes sense for you and as your interests increase. But recognizing that there are positions, um, you know, on a spectrum of um, opportunities to meet both your interest, um, your um, desire to to, um, participate in higher education, um, the resources that you have available to you at Mm -hmm. any point in time yeah so you 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 kind of hit on a really important point there which i think you know people are, i believe are becoming more open to stacking their credentials yes. and not that just okay there's one pathway to this again so it's you know lawyers so i have to do you know four years and then graduate work and then yes. law school like it's more of okay like i can see if this is of interest to me i can take some classes i can get a certificate or credits and then i can maybe work and maybe the employer will pay for me to get my two-year degree or my my four-year degree yes um and so on and so forth i finally you know i i've been here at the college for 13 years you know finishing like just finished my second as as president and ceo but i feel like i'm finally starting to see that shift a mm-hmm. little bit and just you know people understanding that okay it doesn't have to be linear you yes. know, there's there's many different ways 
to get um, to the career or or the the pathway that that might be good for me. Are you seeing that as well? Absolutely, and that there are opportunities for mid career level professionals mm-hmm. and other professionals, especially you know in a time like this where we see a lot of changes in our economy and perhaps you know an opportunity that. Um, was there six months ago is not going to be there in the next six months. And so there are opportunities that individuals in our community have to obtain some training that will put them in a whole different career track. And so I think that it's helpful not only for, you know, young professionals thinking about how do I advance in my career, but all professionals to recognize that there are options for me to enter into, you know, a different field than I imagined um, at a variety of points. And within a relatively um, short amount of time, like you said, it's not going to take four years to enter into a um, into a health uh, professional track. That that's something that I could do um, in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, and I think too, you know, kind of breaking down sort of those, you know, I think not just sort of the uh, stereotypes that like, well, healthcare is just these healthcare careers are just for women, or and yes. these are the ones that are for for men. Um, again, we've been slow here to see that but we're like finally starting to see like more you know men in radiology which has been traditionally female um more women in biomedical equipment technology um because that's been traditionally male so it's just it's interesting to see that shift as as well and whatever we can do to to keep (laughs) promoting that yeah um, and that you don't have to have a tolerance for needles and blood right right. in order to pursue (laughs) a health career i know i know this is animal care but we often you know we joke that when people hear about our veterinary technology program they think oh i'm just going to get to play with and fifi and then to your point um well i gotta you know stick them with the needle yes. but <laughs> that's certainly part of it but there's a whole other a lot that goes yes. into that program as well as our, our health our uh, health services programs so, yes um it's exciting again to see people just you know taking the time to understand that a little better yes and that there is no one pathway to mm-hmm. success <laughs> Um, well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank with you. Me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Find all Tech Talk with Johnson College podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. Johnson College, we work.